So, <clears throat> I was thinking in many areas of life, we don't know what the outcome of our endeavours will be. So, we might be thinking, can I save enough money for that holiday that I've dreamed of for so long? Can I study hard enough to get those grades that I desperately need for university? Or maybe, can I drink enough coffee to get through this sermon? <laughs> now, <clears throat> some of those factors are within our control, like how many cups of coffee we drink, and others of them are outside our control, like how strongly caffeinated the coffee is that John has brought for the church. Um, but this morning, um, this morning, one of the things, um, that the message of this morning is that the outcome for us as Christians is secure because God himself has done everything that's necessary for us in Jesus Christ. So we're reminded of the fact that God himself is the author of our faith and he is the finisher of our faith. It says in Hebrews and chapter 12, verse 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. But this morning, it's quite simple this morning, but there's three truths, three specific truths that flow from the reality of God's work in our life. And I feel really strongly um, that God wants us to dig deep into these three truths this morning. And they're three truths that really come out of this passage that we're going to look at. So the first truth is in verses 1 to 2. And that truth is that God's work secures a new identity. God's work secures a new identity. If you think about it, there are two identities mentioned in these first two verses. The first identity is the identity of a bondservant. Paul and Timothy describe themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> if I'd have been Paul and I was writing this epistle, you might be tempted to say St. Paul or St. Joe to the servants of Jesus who are in Philippi. But Paul doesn't do that. He turns it on his head and he writes, Slave Paul um, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. So he describes himself as a bondservant. And what I want to talk about just for a few moments is what is a bondservant? Bondservant is a strange word, isn't it? In the Old Testament, there were two types of servants. There were hired servants and there were bond servants. Now, hired servants were a bit like an employee. If you were a hired servant, you could expect certain conditions, you could ex expect a certain amount of pay, um, you could expect certain rights. However, if you were a bond servant, you didn't have any rights at all. Um, you had no trade union, you could be used by your master however he felt, however he decided you should be used, and that was what a bond servant was. And it's very interesting that this word bond servant is the word that is used right through the New Testament to describe 
um, to describe what Paul was describing himself as here. Um, on the screen before me, behind me, um, Jesus himself talks about bondservant, and he describes in a little parable what a bondservant is. He says, And which of you, having a servant ploughing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are poor, unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So in these verses behind me, Jesus gives a job description of a bondservant. And one of the things we notice is that the bondservant has been out all day slaving away in the field. And he comes back home, and I don't know about you, but you know, I come back home after work sometimes, after dealing with all of the crises of, of work. And you know, you're a bit tired and you're a bit you know, at your wit's end. Um, and all you want to do, all I want to do is put my feet up and have a nice cup of tea. But this, this bondservant, um, he comes back in after a hard day slogging and grafting um, on the field, and then his master says to him, come, make me my dinner. I need my dinner, and after that, you can have your dinner. So, so that's the first thing. A bond servant has to be someone who's willing to have one thing after another put on top of them without any consideration uh, for how they will be. It sounds quite, quite, um, quite difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> but also, the bond servant in the parable here He's willing to do all of this without a word of thanks. So you notice in the parable, the master doesn't say to him, oh, thank you for slogging away from me all day on the field, and thank you for making my dinner for me. In fact, there's not even a word of thanks from the master. That's what a bond servant does. And thirdly, if you were the bond servant, you'd be tempted to say about the master, He's very mean, isn't he? He's a bit selfish. He's making me do all of these things and he's not even saying thank you. There's not even a mention in this parable of the bondservant being thanked. The fourth thing the bondservant has got to be willing to do at the end of all this is after all of this, he's got to be willing to say, we are unprofitable. We're of no real use to either God or man. And the bondservant uh, confesses after this that all he's done is his duty. He hasn't done any more than what he should have done. It, it sounds sobering, doesn't it? It sounds quite a high standard. But you know, Jesus is the one who has the authority to tell us what a servant is and isn't. And that is Jesus' standard. That is what Jesus expects of his servants. And that is what Paul was. If you think about Paul... Uh, through his ministry, he talked, he said, I'm willing to endure all things for the sake of the elect. Um, he said he'd been willing to become all things to all men, if by the grace of God he might win some. He says in 2 Corinthians, brothers, we do all things for your edification. The thing is, we're so far away from that, aren't we? In ourselves, we're not like that. We're always looking for recognition. 
We're always looking for someone to give us a pat on the back. And if we're honest, we expect certain rights and we expect certain expectations. We think that we are entitled to it, don't we, naturally. It's only as we come to the cross, it's only as we come back to the cross again, it's only as we see Jesus, who became the ultimate bondservant of God and man, pouring out his life, bleeding on the cross, that we're broken, that we're broken, and that we become willing to become bondservants of Jesus, the ultimate bondservant. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, he says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And Timothy was also a man who was like that. It says later on in Philippians, it says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I know no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. If only we could grasp this truth, if only I could grasp it, if only you could grasp it, so many of the problems that we have relating to one another, so many of the problems that we have as a church would be eliminated because the reason we have these conflicts between each other is because we think that we're employees. We think God owes us something. We think other people owe us something. And, and when our needs aren't being met, we become resentful, self-pitying. So that's one identity. I mean, I guess that's quite a sobering identity. But I think it's a truth. I think the New Testament teaches that. We are to take the place of a bondservant. And it's not very easy to do that. I don't often feel like being a bondservant. But um, we have a, we, the whole point of this passage is that we're not becoming bondservants because we're striving to become that way. But because of what Jesus has done on the cross, that's already what we are. That's already what we are in reality. Now, I want to move on to the second identity here um, that God has created. And it says here, to the saints in Christ Jesus. To the saints in Christ Jesus. We are made saints in Christ Jesus and we're made saints in Christ Jesus because we are recipients of grace and peace. It says in verse uh, 2, it says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace go together. Grace is God's unmerited favour that we enjoy. And because of God's unmerited favour that we enjoy, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Um, Notice that that grace and that peace is only available, exclusively available, through Jesus Christ. It cannot come through any other way. So the Greek word here for saint is a word called hagios, hagios, and it means consecrated to God and holy. It's very important to understand that through the New Testament, all Christians are repeatedly referred to as saints. Um, You know, some traditions of the Christian church uh, have claimed that, you know, there are special saints, are people who the church has canonized and elevated, but you won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. And if you look at Acts 9, verse 32, which should come up on the screen behind me, 
It says, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. So do you think that when it says he came to the saints who dwelt in Lydda, do you think that he was talking about a particular number of special people that the church had decided to be saints? No, he wasn't. He was just talking about ordinary people, ordinary Christians. And that's you and me. We are saints in Christ Jesus. Um, In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, uh, Paul says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. There are two twin truths about being a saint. The first truth, it says, is that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That is our position. We have been made holy. That is a reality that we walk in. But also, we're called to be saints. We're called in our daily lives to work out the reality of that sainthood, what it means to clothe ourselves with that Christ-likeness so that we're living in the reality of that. I have to be careful what I say here, but I think it's an important point that some of you are struggling with, with certain sins that you've fallen into a, a, few, a few times. I mean, I'm not saying that that's okay. I'm not saying that we can continue in sin. But I think even at times when we've fallen, it's important to remind ourselves that we have this position in Jesus Christ and that that can't actually be taken away from us. We are saints in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it feels when we talk about these things, you know, talking about what we have in Christ, it can feel a bit like we're doing like mental gymnastics, that we're trying to convince ourselves of something that isn't really true. But the fact of who you are this morning, if you trust in Jesus, that fact is more real than many of the things that you experience every day. That's a greater and a deeper reality, that you are a saint of Jesus Christ. But as we go on, um, you know, I would just like to mention this scripture in Ephesians 5 and verse 3, talking about saints. It says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you, as is proper for saints. So although... We have this position which cannot be taken away from us. We need to live in the light of our sainthood, what God has called us to. Now, I just want to... This is a word that I think the Holy Spirit... When I was... I'm not saying I hear directly from God, but as I was, as I was praying um, about this sermon, one of the things God really put his heart on that he wanted to speak about this morning is this issue of identity. Um, Because I think it's a big issue for many of you in this church. It's a big issue for me. And also it's a big issue um, for our society in which we live in at the moment. Think for a moment of everything that that word saint conveys. It means that you are clean. You are not dirty. It means that you are significant. You are not worthless. And it means that you are accepted and you are not rejected. All of those things are tied up in that one word, saint. And I'm not just trying to build you up this morning as a psychological kind of... I don't want to do that. But this is the truth of God's word. And we need to be able to say to ourselves... Do you remember David in the Old Testament? He encouraged himself in God. He knew how to encourage himself in God. And so those days when you feel 
that you failed again, and those days when you feel for one reason or another that you're rejected, you just need to say to yourself, I am a saint of God, I am loved by God, and I am accepted in the Beloved. It's really interesting that um, Adam earlier, and this is the Holy Spirit, Adam brought out a passage earlier, and he said in Ephesians, it was from, I think it was, was it Colossians or Ephesians, similar to this one, and it says in Ephesians 1, verse 6 to 7, it says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Accepted in the beloved. In him we have, i.e. we enjoy as a present possession, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. There's a number of reasons we can go through life and we can feel like we're rejected. For some of you, the reason you feel rejected is because you didn't have that love when you were growing up and there were circumstances and situations in which you felt you were rejected. For some of you, the reason you feel rejected um, is that you've never felt that you quite fit in. And I think we all know what that's like, don't we? But there's a deeper need in human beings that God has put there, and that is to be in relationship with him. We were made for something deeper. Um, And that need is to be accepted by God, to know that we are accepted by him, that we are surrounded with his embrace, and that we are loved by him. And that is what this identity is here, accepted in the beloved, a saint. And that's what Paul was writing to. Just think about society. Think about where we find ourselves at the moment in this society. Identity is such a hot-button issue. Personal identity, and there is confusion over identity. And I think Satan is having a field day about identity. If you look on Facebook now, do you know how many genders there are? And I, I say this in love because these are, these are issues people, people uh, uh, struggle with. So this isn't to condemn anyone. But there are now 56 I, um, genders on Facebook. There are 56 genders on Facebook. Some of them, for example, gender fluid, gender non-conforming, gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer, and pangender. There are all these identities now on Facebook that you can, that you can uh, identify yourself as. So there is an assault on identity. Now, part of that, obviously, is we know God has made male and female. But the deeper root, the issue isn't these issues with identity, um, the gender identity. That's not the deepest root. The deepest root is for people to know that they are loved and they are accepted by God. Um, and that is the truth of God's word that we have. It's so important That's why I think God wanted me to emphasize this, um, because identity is under attack from every angle, and confusion is reigning on every angle. But God wants us to be secure in the identity that he's given us. And you know, one of the things I want to do um, after this message, I've got a few more things to say about a few other things, but one of the things I want to do is I want to give you an opportunity to receive prayer this morning if you feel that you're struggling with your identity. If you feel that identity has become an issue for you, I want you to receive prayer because God wants to 
uh, put into your heart his identity this morning. He wants you to know how loved you are by him. All we do in our lives is a quest for identity. In our jobs, I don't know about you, but in our jobs, we're always trying to, um, we can all be guilty of this, trying to get to the next rung of the ladder so that finally we'll be accepted. Maybe we're trying to get into a certain family situation or family relationship, and maybe those things are the things that define us, being a mother or a father or being a particular job. Um, But the issue with all of these identities that we spend our entire lives searching after is that they're all temporary, they're all shifting, they're all subjective, and that they can't be a firm foundation on which to build our lives. If your identity this morning is on your career, what happens when you can't work anymore? If your identity this morning is as a parent and looking after your children, which is very important, God calls us to do that, But if it's only that, what happens when your children leave home, if that's the only way you get your worth or your value? All of these things are shifting, and this is the problem. We base our worth on those. But if we're going to move forward, if we're going to be strong, we have to uh, realise our identity in Jesus Christ. Saints, bondservants and saints. So I want to have the opportunity to do that um, briefly at the end of this sermon. I really want to pray for you. And uh, I, really, I really sense that some of you are, are struggling in that area. Um, and I just really want to pray. And we're, at the end of the, uh, the, the when I've spoken, um, we're going to call uh, the worship band up. And we're going to have a time of just ministry. And I'm going to pray for you. Um, and we're going to believe God to, um, to do things where that's an issue for you this morning. So that's the first thing. Paul uh, writes to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Saints because of grace and peace through Jesus Christ. But the second thing which, which, uh, which God's work creates is that God's work creates secure new relationships. It's not only our identity as individuals that God has created for us, but it's new relationships. It's not only an, ident- an individual identity, but it's a corporate identity. It says in... Um, In the second part of verse 1, it says, To the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, uh, with the bishops and deacons. So the second truth that comes from uh, from God's work is that we have secure new relationships. Um, We have secure new relationships. Paul knew that the the, the focus of his relationship with the Philippians, it says in uh, verse 7, was that you all are partakers with me of grace. So oftentimes we may not feel that we have much in common with certain people in church, but we're all partakers of grace. We're all partakers of that same gospel. And Paul goes on to say in Philippians that there are three things that spring from this new relationship Um, that he has with them. He says the first thing is that it causes him to be thankful. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And so he says that every time he thought about the Philippian believers, every time they came to his mind, um, he thanked God for them. And it's interesting that he doesn't just thank 
the believers for themselves, but he thanks God for the work that God is doing in their lives because he knows that everything that the Philippians have done, all those good things, that generous gift that they gave him, all of the good fruit that they gave him, he knew that it was ultimately God and so he was thankful to God. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. But the second thing, he says, is always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. So every time he thought about the other Christians, he was joyful and he was happy. I wonder if, I wonder if we do that when we think and when we pray about our brothers and sisters here at Servants Church. I wonder if I think about my brothers like Adam or Neil or whoever else, do I think, oh, I'm really pleased about those guys, you know, and it just, just makes me feel happy. Um, but that's how Paul was. Um, that's how Paul was um, when he thought about his friends at the church. He was, he was happy and he was full of, he was full of joy. Um, and, you know, maybe other feelings come to our surface in our minds when we think about other Christians. Maybe feelings of irritation or resentment or frustration. But Paul said that he... Um, in every prayer of mine, he made requests for them all with joy. If you just look at the language that Paul uses, look at the language that he uses about these uh, Christians in, in, this, um, in this passage. He says, God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So all of his heart, his heart was wrenched with love for these people. And it wasn't just his own love, but it was an affection that was supernatural that came from Jesus Christ. And he was proud of the Philippians. He boasted about them. Um, he describes them, I think in chapter 4, he describes them as his joy and his crown. So he was full of, of love for these. His heart was full, overflowing with devotion um, and love for these people. And then finally, the third thing that this relationship uh, creates is it creates fellowship in the gospel. Fellowship in the gospel. So the basis and the ground of that um, relationship that they had was the gospel itself. But it led them to have fellowship. And fellowship is something that is an objective reality. It starts in the Godhead himself. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit enjoy this perfect communion. And we, because of the gospel, can enjoy, can, we can enter into that relationship. I mean, it's like there's this objective reality of God, of, his, of his, who he is as divine, and we can step into that river of enjoying, bathe ourselves, enjoy just stepping into the reality of that deep fellowship. It's not just that we've all decided to come together and we're going to work together for the gospel. It's that we're actually sharing in the life of God himself. His life is spilling out to us and we can enjoy being um, partakers of that life. And that was what Paul was enjoying with these Christians. He was enjoying the fellowship of the gospel, the fellowship of God himself. So thankfulness, joy, fellowship, all these truths that he could enjoy as believers. I just want to skip on and I just want to uh, look at the end of those verses. Um, and Paul prays specifically, doesn't he, for this group of believers. He's concerned for their spiritual well-being. If you look in um, uh, verse 9, he prays that their love may abound. Still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. 
Now, if you think about what love is, love is wanting the highest well-being of another person. Now, we think love naturally is just being nice to people and being warm and fluffy. That's what I often think of love is. But actually, you know, love ultimately, the greatest loving thing is encouraging people to grow in likeness to Jesus Christ. And so it's a love which needs knowledge and discernment to know what that is for each person. Speaking things into people's lives that will equip them and encourage them to become more like Christ. Because just being nice to people, just always comforting people, that's great. But that's not going to always help people. Because our greatest good, our greatest goal is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Um, and so we need knowledge and discernment. That is our greatest goal, to become like Jesus Christ. We need knowledge and discernment. And it says in verse 10, the other thing he prayed for them was that they would approve the things that are excellent. In other words, he prayed for them that they would start to value the things that God values. Because naturally, we don't value the things that God values. And so he prayed for them that they would start to value the things that God values. And thirdly, he prays for them that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And Paul goes into more detail in Galatians about what those fruits of righteousness are. But they are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be praying for one another that we would increase in those fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. So they were the things that Paul prayed for this group of believers. So that really is key truth number one and number two. So key truth one is that we have a secure new identity in Christ. Key truth two is that God has created secure new relationships for us. And there's one last truth, and that's God's work creates a secure hope for the future. A secure hope for the future. Now, I want to just do a little bit of slight theology with you uh, at the moment. Don't worry, it's not too complicated because I don't understand it myself. <laughs> um, but just think for a moment about how were you saved? How did you become a Christian in the first place? Um, now, there are lots of... I'm kind of touching a can of worms here because this kind of touches the whole... Uh, Calvinist and Arminian thing, and I'm not going to get into that. Do you know what? I'm not Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. I can't figure it out. Wesley couldn't. Whitfield couldn't. I don't think I can. But, um, <laughs> but there are some truths of God's word that we have to um, remind ourselves on. That's what I'm interested in this morning. The truths of God's word. How do we become a Christian? So are we just walking along our merry way one day, and we think to ourselves, um, this Jesus business sounds like a good idea. I'm going to choose to follow Jesus because I've weighed up all the things in my own mind and I think that following Jesus is a good idea. Do you think that's how it works? Well, I'm not convinced that it does <clears throat> because in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it talks about us being um, dead in trespasses and sins. So really, we are in, before we know Jesus, we are in a state of spiritual death. And uh, 
we're in a predicament until God intervenes and reaches into our lives and draws us out. We are in a state of spiritual death and blindness. Um, It says in Ephesians 2 and verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it's God's initiative. God is the one who intervenes. God is the one who, who does it. If you look at Romans 3, verses 10 to 11, it says, There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So we're not even looking for God naturally. Because our minds and our intellects have become corrupted. So God has to reach down in his gracious mercy and he makes us alive together with Christ. So that is his work. And you remember Jonah. Do you remember poor old Jonah? He was stuck in the belly of the whale, wasn't he? And um, he said, when he was there, brought into that state, I'd probably be saying the same. He said that salvation is of the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. So salvation is God's work from beginning to to end. Um, and knowing that reality, knowing that it doesn't depend on us, knowing that our coming to faith does not depend on us, gives us a secure hope because we know that eventually we are going to reach heaven's shore. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying that there is no role of free will, and there are other questions about whether you know, it's possible for us to resist God's, uh, God's, uh, God's uh, calling on us at any point, and there are issues there. And we know as well that God does desire to save all, as the Bible teaches, and Jesus died for all. But there is this reality that our salvation um, began with an initiative from God. And because it's his initiative, because it's dependent on him, then we also know that our future is secure. Our future is safe with him. So if you just look at, um, I've got a quote above me from Spurgeon hopefully. And uh, I just want to think about God's work, God's work. If you look at creation, if you look at the beauty of creation, if you look all around at all that God has done, it's good, isn't it? And he hasn't done a half-hearted job. He doesn't just sort of half make a mountain or half make a beautiful waterfall and it's just a little trickle. Or He doesn't have, he didn't leave the earth just kind of half created. He brought it to a state of completion. He brought it to a state of perfection initially didn't he and he said about the creation it's very good and so if the same God who brings that um, universe to a state of perfection he's going to bring you to a state of perfection and completion in the end and we are all waiting for that day we are waiting for that day when all of us are going to be unveiled as God's masterpieces and he's going to put that final pen stroke on that day And uh, we are going to be perfect in every way. We're going to love people perfectly. There's going to be no trace of selfishness. We're going to love God perfectly. We're going to be filled with joy and peace. Um, And God will complete that work in us. So Spurgeon says, Where is there an instance of God beginning any work and leaving it incomplete? Show me for once a world abandoned and thrown aside, half-formed. Show me a universe cast off from the great potter's wheel with the design and outline, the clay half-hardened and the form shapely from incompleteness. 
It doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen. God's work is good in three ways. It's a good work in that it doesn't falter or fail. It's a good work in that it comes from a good God. Its origin is an infinitely good being. And it's a good work in that ultimately it will make us good. It will make us like Jesus himself. And what better outcome could that be? Um, so, so really that's, that's all I've really got to, to say today by, way, by means of um, the teaching really. Three truths, three truths, three truths that God wants to speak to you this morning. A secure new identity, new relationships and a secure hope for the future.